you guys have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 10. As you guys know, we've been working through the gospel of Mark, and I really pray that it's been a blessing to you. Uh, The gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the good news. That's the good news that saves us and sanctifies us. Uh, It's the gospel that's holding us until the day that Christ returns, and it's been so beautiful and fun to slowly walk through this story of Jesus and his teachings and his time with his disciples. And we've, con- and we've been taking that and, and putting it to heart and trying to practice that uh, as best we can. Let me read you our text today, and then we'll dive in. It's from Mark chapter 10. I'll read verses 1 through 12. It says this, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Praise God for his word. Uh, What a text. I don't know about you, but I'm sweaty. Is anybody else nervous? A little anxious about where this is going? Uh, I remember when I found out that I would have the privilege of teaching this text. I remember nervous anxiety, right? Fear. And then I remember thinking about how relevant and how sensitive this topic is to so many people. And I knew that when we bring up this text and talk about divorce, how personal this text would be. And I feel that weightiness on me right now. I want you to think about this real quick. I bet most likely every single person in this room in some way has been affected by divorce. Let's test that theory just for a second. Um, Some of you in this room have gone through a divorce yourself. The statistics in America are that 50% of American marriages end in divorce. And statistics say that in the church, in Christianity, those statistics aren't any lower. So 50% of the marriages, American marriages, end in divorce. So that could be some in this room right there. Many of you have divorced parents. You've experienced divorce because your parents have been divorced or your in-laws have divorced and so you married into a family that has experienced divorce. What about close friends? Have any of you guys seen your close friends go through a divorce? Feel that, seen that happen? What about your siblings? You guys have siblings that have gone through that, messy divorces? And maybe even some of you in this room have had children who have gone through divorces and you've had to be the parent on the other side of that, giving advice and being there for them during that time. That's a lot of 
people and folks that have experienced and have been affected by divorce. I think I would be shocked if we could find someone in our crowd today that hasn't in any way been affected by divorce. I think it'd be hard to find. And that is why our text today is so difficult and weighty because it is so personal to so many people, maybe even everyone. So whenever we discuss the topic of divorce, here's what happens. The majority of you have a situation that comes to mind. I mentioned divorce and names come to mind. And now all of a sudden we're in a situation, we're in, we're in the middle of it. So it's hard to address this topic without any situations affecting the discussion. It's very easy to come to a passage like this and say, yeah, but what about? But you don't understand this situation. You don't understand these circumstances. And you're right. That's why we will not be ending the service with a Q&A time because you would stump the chump very easily. So that's not happening. But feel free to come up and talk to us and we'll discuss it. So today, like we do every week, I want to make sure that I preach the text and I let the text, God's word, speak to us. Today, you and I need to sit underneath the word of God. Let it be the authority, not our circumstances. Allow it to teach us and to shape us and to grow us. My prayer this morning is that we can't walk out of here saying, I really disagree with Travis today. My desire, my prayer is that if you disagree today, you will have to say, I disagree with the Bible. So this is how I want us to address our text today. Would you mind for my own nerves that I pray one more time? and ask God to allow us to do that very thing. Heavenly Father, God, we just read a heavy text, a difficult passage where you are addressed with a question from Pharisees. And Father, as we look at your answer and we look at your discussion with your disciples, I pray that we would submit, that we would sit underneath your word, allow it to be truth, and for us to align our hearts, our life, our mind to what you say. Holy Spirit, use the word of God to transform our hearts and minds today. I pray that we would become more like Christ. Keep bitterness and heartache and, and difficulty out of our hearts and minds and allow us to be transformed. We love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, as you know, we're in the book of Mark. And this story, this section falls into a bigger narrative. So let's make sure we know where Mark is heading and where Mark is going so we can see where this falls. So the book of Mark is about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus is the promised Messiah who is sharing the good news of the coming kingdom. He's traveling around and showing glimpses of his kingdom. He's healing some. Uh, he's forgiving some. He's doing miracles, casting out demons. All of this is the show to prove that he is the Son of God and that his kingdom is coming in glimpses of it. But every time he gathers a crowd, there's people in the crowd, like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Roman officials who hate him. And that every time he teaches, they've got something to say. He travels around teaching, drawing large crowds, and inside of every crowd are those who oppose him. And those who oppose him are now getting more vocal and more violent as we work through the book of Mark. Our text today shows us one of those encounters with the Pharisees as he's teaching the crowd. That's what this is. The section we just read is an encounter between the Pharisees and Jesus. It's a, it's a battle, if you will. 
But before we dive into the meat of the text, and let's, let's make a few observations about this encounter. I want you to notice what's at the heart of this conversation, what the agenda is before we dive into the topic of divorce, because it will bring a lot of light and clarity to what's really at the heart, at the heart of this. So three observations about the text, about this question that the Pharisees are asking in order for us to understand the, the debate that we'll about to see. Okay, number one, please notice in your text that Jesus did not bring up the topic of divorce. The Pharisees did. That's important. You'll see why in a second. Our text says that he wasn't teaching the people. Sorry, our text says that he was teaching the people and some Pharisees came up to talk to Jesus. It doesn't say that Jesus was talking about divorce. I think that's important. Jesus' sermon that day was not on three valid reasons to divorce your spouse. Yet many times Christians talk about divorce as if that's how Jesus addressed this as the topic. Well, you know, Jesus allows this out and he allows this out, and he allows this out. That's not our text. Instead, Jesus' stance on divorce is very clear. Look at verses 6 through 9 one more time. Here's Jesus' stance on divorce. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We want to know what Jesus' view on divorce is? It's right there. That's what Jesus says about divorce. Number two, please notice why they brought up the topic of divorce. It says in your text, the reason they discussed divorce with Jesus was to test him. That's what it says, to test Jesus. Our text makes it very clear what the agenda of this conversation was. The Pharisees were not really interested in getting some advice on their crumbling marriages. That's not what caused this conversation. A Pharisee's like, man, I got difficult life at home. Jesus, got any advice for me? No, that's not in our text. They were just trying to trap him so they would be able to convict him. The goal was to come up with a really smart, hard question so they could get rid of Jesus. So you see, the Pharisees' goal was that Jesus would somehow, whatever he said, would contradict something so that they'd say, gotcha, we asked the right question finally. And they've been doing this the whole book of Mark, trying to get Jesus to trip up, to fail. The Pharisees were hoping that Jesus would either contradict the Old Testament right? So these were the Pharisees. They were the authorities on the law. They knew the law. They thought, let's ask Jesus about the law. Maybe he'll mess up. Maybe he'll misquote Moses or Deuteronomy. Maybe we can trap him. Maybe he won't quote it right, or maybe we can get him to contradict. He says he's the word. He says he's the word of God. He says he's from God. He's the son of God. Maybe he doesn't know the word of God. Let's get him to mess up. Or maybe they wanted him to contradict the current view or the current standing, the the point. Um, In that day, first century, rabbis, uh, the spiritual leaders of the day who were supposed to discern the Old Testament law, came to some decisions. They were the theologians of the day. And these two famous theologians, I'm really bad at pronouncing names, but Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Halal, these were the experts And they came to some decisions on Jewish understanding of the law and divorce. And these two men agreed and disagreed. They agreed that God allowed divorce, 
but they disagreed on what was the means or what was the allowance, okay? So one of them said, you can only divorce for um, infidelity. The other one said, you can divorce pretty much for any reason. So they knew Jesus is going to have to give an answer, and he can't agree with both of them. He's going to have to agree with one of them, and we got him. He's going to contradict one of the experts, and then his crowd is going to disperse, or at least some of them. It was the perfect setup for a church split. Hey, pastor, you're going to lob that one at you. See how you have that one? You're going to lose 50% of your audience, whatever you say. That was the goal. They wanted him to contradict the rabbis of the day. And lastly, I think this one's really interesting. They wanted him to contradict King Herod. We're in the book of Mark. We've been studying this. Remember John the Baptist? Remember why John the Baptist was put to death? Because he told King Herod his marriage was against the law. King Herod had married someone that he was related to and divorced his old wife and married his new wife. And John the Baptist pointed a finger at him and said, you can't. That's against the law. And what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head. This is exactly it. It's the perfect setup. Let's ask Jesus the same thing. Let's get Jesus to do the same thing that John the Baptist did and we'll get him killed too. It's the perfect trap. This is the perfect question. This is what is at the heart of this divorce. They want the divorce topic. They want Jesus to mess up and contradict him and then for, therefore say, you're not the son of God. You're not the Messiah. You're not a religious leader. You don't even know what you're talking about. Get him out of here. This was a no-win question for Jesus, they thought. Can't you see the Pharisees asking this question with a smirk on their face? And they're like, hey, got a good one for you. Can I throw you a riddle? See how you do. This is a trap. They know it. He knows it. And whatever comes out of his mouth, they thought, they got him. And then lastly, notice the wording of the question. This is really important. They ask, is it lawful? That's really important. And that is a terrible question. And it teaches us a lot about how this conversation is going to go. Here's what they're asking. Is it allowed? Not, is it wise? They're asking, can I, instead of, is it a good idea? Or does this bring God glory? Or is God in favor of this? They don't want advice. They should have been asking, does this improve my witness? Does it bring God more honor and glory? But instead, they ask, do I have a legal right to? Is there an out clause? Am I allowed to get out of my difficult marriage? That's the question, and it's a terrible one. How many times do you and I do the same thing? We ask, can I, instead of should I? Should I is a way better question, and it has a humble teachable spirit. They should have asked Jesus, should we? Is it honoring to God? Does it bring him glory if we divorce? I think they would have gotten a different answer. The Pharisees are very religious, but they're not very godly, right? You see that all throughout the book of Mark. They're religious, but not godly. Before we discuss divorce today, Please know that this text today is way more about biblical knowledge, religious authority, spiritual righteousness than it really is about divorce. Divorce is simply the example or the trap 
the Pharisees are using in order to try to prove to Jesus they are really the, spirit, the religious leaders of the day or to try to get Jesus killed for either being a liar, an imposter, a threat to Rome, or a blasphemer. So that's one of their options. And lastly, it's really about trying to get people to stop following Jesus. If they can trick Jesus, trap Jesus, show that Jesus isn't that smart, the crowd will go away, and that's a win for the Pharisees. They don't like anything about what Jesus is doing. And if they can get him to mess up, slip up, that's a win for the Pharisees. But see, as we look at this text and, and look at the Pharisees' hearts, the Pharisees are proving to us that they, are, that they completely miss the point as they stare the Son of God in the eye. They, they are proving to us they're not believers. They don't believe that he is the Savior of the world and the Son of God. They're proving they're not believers, but, it, but instead, here's their theology. Here's what Pharisees believe. They believe that adherence to the law is the gospel. They believe that obedience and knowing the law is the heart of the gospel. While instead, what we know is that God desires a pure heart, an internal heart. Remember King David in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Change me, God. I'm sinful already. I can't obey your law. I'm already sinful and wicked. I need you to change me to redeem me. You see, the Pharisees didn't recognize that they were already sinful and needed a savior. Pharisees are just moralists who are dead in their sin. They thought it's the next act of obedience that really proves your righteousness instead of a previous conversion. That's what we believe. Conversion's what saves you, not, not obedience. Number two, Pharisees believe that religious position is the goal. The higher the ladder you climb, that's the goal. While instead, serving God is the goal. And serving God is the purpose of their religious position. Their position shouldn't have been about power, but it was. The very fact that they were religious leaders gave them an opportunity to make an impact and to point people to God. But instead, they used it to point fingers at themselves and said, look at me, look how awesome I am, look how righteous I am, look how sinless I am. That's what they believed. And lastly, they believed that Bible knowledge was the goal while knowing Jesus is the goal. We love this book. We cherish this good book. But the goal of this book is not to know this book. The goal of this book is to know Jesus. If we make this book about the book instead of about Christ, we've missed the point. And that's what Pharisees do. They love knowledge. They love information. They love to prove they're smart. And yet, the Son of God and the Savior of the world is standing right in front of them, looking them in the eyes, and they don't even recognize him. And it's the Pharisees who are the ones that were supposedly waiting for the Messiah to arrive with bated breath, right? That's what they were supposed to do. We love the Old Testament. It tells us about the coming king, the coming Messiah. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And he's standing right there looking at him like, no, it's not you. Um, that's supposedly what they're supposed to be doing, waiting. And they don't even recognize Jesus. It's proving their heart and their theology is off. And what Jesus is going to do with his answer is correct their theology. He's going to prove to them they don't know their Bibles like they think they do, and they sure don't know the heart of God like they think they do. If you, have, if you don't mind, turn to Matthew chapter 19. 
In Matthew chapter 19 is the same story, a different account, Matthew's account, almost identical, but it is worded a little bit differently, and I want to read it for you, and then to highlight just a few key things, the key differences between how the Pharisees thought and how Jesus thought. Matthew chapter 19, I'll read verses 1 through 9 for you. Maybe you'll notice some of the differences. Matthew 19, 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And, loud, and, sorry, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. What I want you to do, and what I I like about the Matthew text, is it breaks it down in more of a paragraph form, and it shows you their theology. It shows you where they run to for biblical accuracy. And it's really interesting, because it shows us that when Jesus is asked a question, where did he run to? He ran to the Garden of Eden. When the Pharisees are asked the question, where do they run to? Moses. See, their origin or their source of authority or how the world should work was different. They ran to a different source, and that's really important. I don't want you to miss that at all. Why do the Pharisees go back to Moses, but Jesus goes back to the garden? Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you are not going back far enough. You don't know the Bible, God's original intent, like you think you do. You need to go back further. I want to show you this outline because I think this will really help you understand how righteousness works and obedience to God works and then how this topic of divorce goes. So here's it is. What the Pharisees missed was they missed God's plan. And what is God's plan? Holiness, purity, and goodness. That's what God's plan was for them, that they would live lives of holiness and and purity and be covenant keepers. Instead, what the Pharisees did is they replaced God's plan with God's provision and made God's provision the bar, the standard. And what is God's provision? Well, it's rooted in God's mercy, not God's design. Moses' allotment was just helping confine the the depravity of sin and and the reach and the consequences of sins. And yet the Pharisees make that the standard, God's provision. And then lastly, they were ignoring how they should be living. They were ignoring God's prescription. Prescription is discipleship, how God wants you to live and grow. They should have been asking, how do we now live? How do we become better? How do we live for God? How do we bring God glory and honor? Not are we allowed. They were ignoring God's prescription of growing and maturing and living for God. So now, using this, 
let's look at the example the Pharisees used to try to trap Jesus. You see, you could use this for any sin. The Pharisees are using divorce. So let's use divorce as the example to help us understand how this should work. So let's talk about God's plan for marriage and how the Pharisees and Jesus disagree. What is God's plan for marriage? It's clearly stated in Genesis chapter 2. A lifelong covenant. That's marriage. That's God's design. That two would become one. Jesus quotes Genesis 2 in Mark 10. That's our text. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of unity before God. It says in Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The other thing that God's plan for marriage is, is that God hates anything that kills or separates. What was the consequence for sin? Death. What's the definition of death? Anything that put to death or ends or separates. Death was not God's original design. And that's exactly what divorce is. Divorce is the death of a marriage. Death of a covenant. An Old Testament text that helps us see God's heart for divorce is Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. And it says this, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What do we know about God's plan, his original design? He created marriage to be lifelong, for it never to end, for it to be a a covenant you make between God that lasts forever. And he says if you divorce him, it's faithlessness for you giving up, for you quitting, you running. And he says that your garment will be covered with violence. That's how God sees divorce. But now let's look at number two. Now that we know God's plan for marriage, that it'd be lifelong, that it'd be a covenant, what was God's provision? And this is what the Pharisees point to in Moses' law in Deuteronomy chapter 20, 14. Moses' provision for divorce was rooted in God's mercy towards man, not his design for man. That's really important. Moses' provision just shows us that God endures with hard-hearted people like you and I. He doesn't destroy us. He endures with us. Not that those provisions bring him glory. Jesus clearly tells us why Moses permitted divorce. Because of the hardness of our hearts. That's why Moses permitted divorce. Because of the hardness of our hearts. That doesn't sound like God's desire, but more like an exception, right? This is Moses making the best of an already terrible situation. That was God's provision, allowing him to deal with hard-hearted people. This is Moses just making the best out of a terrible situation. Let me give you another example of this that'll help make sense of God's plan and God's provision. You remember in Deuteronomy, there was these places called the cities of refuge. You remember those? These cities of refuge in Deuteronomy um, were places where if somebody was murdered or killed for different reasons, that God would establish these cities of refuge where people could run to and, and escape to. 100% of us in the, this room agree to this statement. Does God hate murder? 
Yes, 100% of us in this room agree with that. Does God hate death? Yes, he doesn't desire that. That was never his design. But God in his provision created these places called cities of refuge. And at these cities of refuge, it was a safe haven for this murderer where there would be a trial, there would be a judge, and there would be appropriate punishments based upon the situations of those murders or those, those deaths. But it would be stupid for us all to think, for any of us to think, that since God established cities of refuge, that God is pro-murder, right? Like, none of us would come to that conclusion. Like, well, I guess murder's okay. God, he made these cities of refuge. I guess, I guess murder's fine. That would be crazy. The same is true of divorce. God is simply making a provision in the middle of a mess, So because of our hard hearts, because of our sinfulness, God knows and makes a plan for this. It's in order for God to limit bigger messes or to limit the consequences of sin so that sin just doesn't keep going out of control and craziness. God is making a provision. See, it's interesting. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever encourage divorce. Even Moses, in explaining the rules for when you divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, he's not, permitting, he's not promoting or encouraging divorce. He's simply giving instructions so no further sins are committed. He's just helping them put boundaries. Like when this happens, here's the boundaries. I'm not telling you to get a divorce. I'm giving you parameters. The same is true in Matthew 19 that we just read. When Jesus gives one exception for remarriage, his point is, let me tell you what adultery is, not what, when is divorce okay. That's not what Jesus is saying. Here's a reason why divorce is okay. No, he's saying this is when adultery happens. So Jesus' conversation with these Pharisees goes like this. Hey, Pharisees, you don't know your Bibles like you think you do. And you for sure don't know God's heart like you think you do. You want to see God's heart and God's desire for marriage? Look to the Garden of Eden. Don't look to the hard-hearted Israelites. Does that make sense? They point back to the provision and say, see? God says, what? No, go to the garden. Go farther back, pre-fall. There you go. That was my design. That was my heart. I know what I just said. I wrote this sermon. I'm saying, I know what I just said sounds harsh. I know it sounds cold and idealistic. I know I'm not taking in all those situations that you're familiar with. So let me say a few things that I need you to hear from one of the pastors of First Family Church when it comes to these situations. Because right now you might be like, man, Travis, you're, you're a jerk face. I was really just cold. Thanks, buddy. Like, wow, okay, sorry, I'm not perfect, right? Like, you might be feeling that. So let me hear, let me, let me say a few things that you need to know. Number one, if you have had a divorce, if you're in this room and you've had a divorce, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce is sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. If you have been divorced, don't think God hates you. God in Christ has forgiven every sinner in this room who has repented and turned to Jesus. Every person in this room has past failures. My hand's up. Every person in this room has past failures. And God has made my failures and your failures trophies of his grace, just like he will to those divorces in this room. 
Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Number two, please hear us say that your safety is more important than a fake, healthy marriage. We would never advise an abused woman to stay in an abusive house. We are not saying that. If you're in a situation where you're hurt, you're being asked to do things that are unspeakable, your life is in danger, your kids are in danger, get out. Leave. Let us help. We will help. We're there for you. We'll listen. We'll care. We're not saying sorry. Don't hear us say that. And lastly, God hates adultery, pornography, addictions, laziness, anger, lying, and all other sins that typically cause marriages to fail just as much as he hates divorce. Don't think just because you haven't divorced your spouse yet, you're righteous. God hates sin. God hates all forms of sin. If you are living in an unrighteous life before God, but you have an intact marriage, don't feel good about yourself. An unrepentant married person is no better off than a divorcee. Hear that. I went to a pretty strict conservative Bible college, and it seemed like we idolized premarital sex. Like that was like the, the line. So I remember being in a dorm where guys would kind of brag about like, well, I haven't gone too far yet with my girlfriend. Like, wow, like that was a badge of honor. But yet knowing these guys, they were as steeped in lust and pornography and other sins as anybody. But for some reason, they bragged about that particular one. That's not how we look at divorce. Sin is sin. Repent daily. Run to Jesus. God hates all sin, and we must constantly be repenting of all sins. Let's not make this just about divorce like the Pharisees did. And then lastly, God's prescription. What is God's prescription for God honoring marriages? You see, not getting divorced isn't the goal. You know what the goal is for our lives? Growing in our faith and love for God. Spiritual growth. That's the goal for our marriages and our lives. God wants a husband and a wife who are passionately running hard after him. That's what he wants. For a husband and a wife who are both running hard after him. That's his desire and that's what happens through discipleship. When husbands and wives are becoming more like Jesus. You remember of Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery? The men bring her, they want to stone her. What is what did Jesus say to the woman who, who was caught in adultery? She, she was a sinner. Remember what God said to her? He said, go and sin no more. He didn't just say, you're forgiven. He said, go and sin no more. He's saying, but now go and, and live for me. Like change, be a different person. Follow after me. You have a new goal now. Put that old way of living to, to death. Live differently. That's discipleship. What did he tell the woman caught in adultery? Grow. Live for me now. Put off those old ways. Follow after me. Pursue me. Remember the Great Commission? It says this, Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. That's the goal of disciples, that we'd obey, that we'd live for Jesus. God knows the key to our spiritual success is discipleship in all areas. 
Not, his goal is not an easier version of the law. That's what the Pharisees were saying. No, 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 you don't have to be righteous. You just don't get a divorce. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you need to live for him, obey him, all of his commands. Continue to grow in that. Hear this. A great marriage is a husband and a wife who are both growing in their love for God. And they're showing grace and mercy to their spouse while they grow in their love for God. That's a great marriage. Two sinners who know they're sinners, who are actively growing, and they're showing grace and mercy to the other one who's actively growing. That's a really great marriage. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. See what happens in discipleship? Your knowledge of God, your faith is growing, and your love for one another is growing. That's a great marriage where I'm growing in my faith and I'm growing in my love. Awesome marriage. That should be what we strive for. That's the prescription. What about 2 Peter 3.18? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Like our goal, our prescription is to grow. Eyes focused on Christ's return. When we'll be made perfect, grow in this time period. Don't fight for an easier life and for all the stresses of life to go away. Grow. That's what makes a great marriage. Spouses who are striving to grow. So you want a great marriage that lasts a lifetime? I do. You want one too? Here's a few things you need to remember. Here's a few things you need to stay focused on. Number one, your spouse is a gift from God. Your current spouse is a gift from God. Proverbs 18, 23 says this, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Have you found a spouse, a wife? That's a gift from God. Your current spouse is a gift from God. Not your next spouse. Not a spouse that's really good at organizing a house. Not a a beautiful spouse. Your spouse is a gift from God. And if you have found a spouse, you've found favor with the Lord. Isn't that awesome? Your spouse is a gift from God. Don't run from a gift. Don't look a gift and be like, eh, would have liked a better gift. That's a gift from God. And God is the perfect gift giver. When shouldn't you be grateful for the gift God has given you? See, real quick, we, we believe in the sovereignty of God, right? That he's in charge of all things. Does that include your marriage? It does. So that means when you stood at the front of the church and you looked your spouse in the eye, we believe that God joined you two together. He put that marriage together. He had your paths crossed. He aligned your two lives. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? That includes who you say, I do too. And that's for life. Number two, your spouse is a helpmate. Instead of rating your spouse and being dissatisfied, rate yourself and see that God gave you your your spouse to help you grow. That's why he gave you your spouse, to help you grow, not just to make you happy. That's not your spouse's job. You know who makes you happy? Jesus. 
He's the only one that can give you the joy you really are looking for. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says this, you know what the biggest problem in my marriage is? Me. Amen. The biggest problem in your marriage is you, not your spouse. That's a great articulate view of your marriage. You're the greatest problem in your marriage. Matthew chapter seven says this, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is perfect in a marriage too. So many times we look at our spouse and be like, man, you are just full of specks. If you could just clean up some of those specks, this whole marriage thing would go a whole lot better. Can you work on you? And your spouse is like, you got a stinking log in your eye, dude. Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you poking at me? Quit evaluating your spouse and evaluate yourself. Quit looking at all their flaws and think, that's the problem. Look yourself in the mirror and realize that's the problem. The biggest problem in my marriage is me. That's a great way to... Stay focused on how to have a great marriage. Travis needs to grow. That's how I'll have a better marriage, is if I grow. Your spouse is there to help you get the log out of your own eye. Quit picking at them and having a speck, for having a speck in their eye. Like that's the biggest problem. Lastly, your spouse is a conduit for growth. Marriage is hard, amen? Marriage is hard. And the reality is, that's okay. Hear that just for a second. Let that, let that settle. Marriage is hard. That's okay. We always want these perfect, easy, no problem marriages like they have on those rom-coms on Netflix, right? Like, get, why don't I have that? It would be awesome if I had all the money in the world. We never taught, fought. Just, can I just have that marriage? No. Marriage is hard. And that's okay. Actually, I think that's the point. I think that's the point of marriage. Listen to these. Listen to a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. God's greatest goal for you is that you grow, that you get better, that you become more like Jesus. And then hear what James says. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does that sound a lot like marriage? When you meet trials of various kinds, does that sound like marriage? Yeah, it does. That's okay because it will create in you to become more perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I can promise you, that your marriage that you're currently in is a refining fire in your life if you will let it be. I say pretty often that I never knew I had a temper until I had kids. I say that pretty often. Well, I can say that same sentence about several other things as it comes to my marriage. I never knew I was like this until I got married. Can you say that too? I never knew. I never knew I was like this. I never knew marriage really brought all that gunk out in me. Yep, that's right. That's its point. It's a refining fire. That's what it's supposed to do. 
And I believe this is exactly one reason why God gave you your spouse, to bring that dross to the surface and allow God the Holy Spirit to skim off the impurities. Marriage brings all of that yuck in your heart to light. Praise God for that. Praise God for a marriage that's not always easy. Because if your marriage is always easy, we wouldn't be growing. Praise God for those things. I want to take what we've just talked about and try to boil it down. Okay, so what? Like, what do we do with this? How do we take this conversation and apply it? We got to talk about marriage. Let me boil it down to a take-home truth. Lifelong marriages, we need to know this. Lifelong marriages are God's will. Lifelong marriages are God's design. But marriages require daily repentance, self-sacrifice, and dedication to growth. Marriages are hard, but they're worth it. They're worth every second, every day. They're worth it, but they take work. You want a great marriage? Get to work and be grateful. Be grateful that God gave you that marriage. You need uh, one more example or one more illustration to help us see how we can endure and get through those hard times? Let's look at Jesus. Think about Jesus. He's the one being attacked. He's teaching the crowds and the Pharisees attack him. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who endured difficult times and stayed faithful. He didn't quit. He didn't give in even till the end. Aren't you so grateful Jesus didn't quit for you? Aren't you so grateful that Jesus never threw in the towel and said, it's too hard, I'm done, I'm out. Is there an out clause? Oh, there is? Perfect, I'm out. Aren't you so grateful he never did that? Think about Jesus. He endured hatred from the ones who were supposedly waiting for him, the Pharisees. The ones who should have been most excited for the Messiah to show up hate him and are tricking him, trying to trap him and trying to murder him. That's pretty tough. It's a pretty tough relationship. Also, Jesus endured the abandonment and betrayal by his best friends. When it got really tough and he needed them the most, they bailed. Peter's denying him to a little girl. Like, when it got really tough, his friends bailed. That's tough. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't quit? He didn't run when it got hard? When he's sweating drops of blood, he didn't throw in the towel and say, I think blood sweat is, is the towel. That's the out clause. I think I'm done. Nope. He endured. And he endured the torture of the cross and never gave up. He hung there. Could he have brought angels to his side to rip him off the cross at any moment? And he hung there and he endured and he said, it is finished. I'm so grateful for that Jesus is my example, not the Pharisees. See, listen to me. I'm almost done. You will never regret being obedient to God. You'll regret your divorce. You will never regret enduring for God's sake. Sticking in there, fighting, staying strong, enduring. You'll never regret that. Do you need motivation to keep going? Look to the cross where he was obedient to God when it couldn't have been more difficult. Your marriage isn't as difficult as the cross. You can endure. You can make it. 
Stay strong. Look to Jesus. Stay strong because when you have a stable, strong marriage, that's a really good window of God's love for us. Stay strong for your kids. Because listen to me real quick. If you take the out clause, they'll learn they can take the out clause. Stay strong for them. Show them what a stable marriage looks like. Show them how in a home, two sinners can live together. And they can fight well and argue okay. And they can apologize. Show your kids that. Show them that when life, does, when life gets hard, you don't quit. Show them it's worth it to be obedient to God no matter what. Your kids need that. The next generation needs that because everywhere they look, they're seeing crumbling marriages. For their sake, for, for God's honor's sake, keep fighting. Don't give up. Look to the cross, for that's where Christ paid your ransom. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.